Great. Thanks, guys. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our church, Hiawatha. Welcome if you're a visitor especially, and to all of you, of course. Uh, glad to have you. Uh, we are in a series right now in the Gospel of John and continuing on to chapter 5. So if you have a phone app, uh, you want to turn there, that'd be great. I think the whole passage, it was able to fit in the sermon inserts you should have gotten. So follow along there as well if you would like here. Uh, we are in a section now in uh, the Gospels where Jesus is just continuing to talk to people. Um, they, you know, there's been named people, there's been unnamed people, men, women, uh, people who are religious elites, people who are very far from God, uh, different uh, understandings of that. And Jesus is continuing to talk to people today, a bunch of Jews who are concerned about his progressiveness uh, when it came to the Sabbath, as we saw last week, and his audacity when it came to equating himself with God. If you remember from uh, verse 18, he equates himself with God when he says, God is my father. Uh, he called himself God's son. Uh, that was sort of the final gauntlet throw, or maybe the initial gauntlet throw for a lot of the Jews who then plotted to kill him. And today he's going to talk to them uh, more about himself, which is really interesting. It's a very a kind of cryptic passage in some ways, kind of trippy, uh, all in good ways, but uh, more about himself. The curtain gets pulled back a bit, uh, the curtain of heaven. We get to really uh, see into the mind of God and how the Father and the Son, God and Jesus, relate and uh, why that's such good news for us. So, uh, with that said, let's dive right in. Uh, today's sermon is called The Father Loves the Son from John 5, 19 to 24. Let's read uh, from verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not commit to judgment, but is passed from death to life. Okay, so a couple of initial comments about this. Uh, this is, I think, one of those places in Jesus' monologues in the gospel accounts where you might think you know what he's saying, but then after further th thought, start to kind of question everything you thought you knew about this passage. It's uh, difficult. But in one sense, that's par for the course with theology sometimes. Uh, with God alone, things remain confusing, but with Jesus things start to make sense. And so when both God, the Father, and Jesus, the Son, are talked about, you can have uh, both feelings. Like, this is really hard to understand because it's talking about God. But this is very easy to understand because it's talking about Jesus. God is invisible. Jesus is visible. God is unsearchable. But Jesus is a revealer. Uh, God is the impossible calculus problem. But Jesus is the answer in the back of the book. And so relatedly, although the Spirit is not mentioned here by name, you might have noticed this is a passage about the Trinity, uh, which is a hard concept to understand. In fact, kind of impossible to understand fully. Uh, but at least this is a passage about the relationship between the first two persons of the Trinity, again, the Father and the Son. And so as previously mentioned, uh, this is verse 18 from last week's passage at the very end. This is one flow of thought you might, that, that might have been... Um, kind of self-explanatory, but one flow of thought here. We just broke it there for thematic reasons, but uh, this is the same crowd, and they're concerned with Jesus's kind of audacity 
with his kind of self-divination, but also like with his breaking of some of the laws of the Old Testament, the breaking of the Sabbath. Uh, and they plot to kill him. And so Jesus here is addressing that kind of by talking more about himself as the son in relation to the father, more of his identicalness in a way uh, with, his, with his father. And so there's a lot of grace in that, that Jesus doesn't just turn and, and walk the other way, kind of reject these uh, opponents of sorts. Maybe even know that some of these people will be the ones who will be yelling for his name to be crucified not too long from now. But he stays talking to them, further underlining this oneness. Again, Colossians 1.15 uh, the Bible uh, you know, says this many places. This is one place in the letters. But the Son is the image of the invisible God. So what we see in Jesus physically with our eyes and with these words printed in our Bibles, um, that's more tangible. It's more, it's more accessible. Uh, but it helps us to see and understand the invisible, the invisible God uh, whose attributes also might remain invisible as well if it weren't for Christ. So he keeps talking to this crowd uh, who's opposed to him, but uh, to identify this, but also identify his subservience to the Father. Augustine called this relationship like, fo- like fire and light. Like you can't have a fire without light coming f- from it. And so Jesus is that light. He, he processes from or progresses from the Father in a very related way, but a little bit different. Uh, the Son, as he says, can do nothing except what he sees the Father doing. The Father loves the Son shows him everything, gives the son uh, the role of exemplifying his characteristics, uh, even to serve as a judge. And so a couple of quick words on that. I, I think that what that means is not just the father saying, um, I just decided to tag you in, and now you're it. You're going to be the judge of all mankind uh, in the end. But rather he's saying that Jesus himself serves, and all that he represents serves as the point of judgment. So who he is, what he came to do is the crux in other words, you can't be saved and nor can you know God apart from Jesus. It's impossible. We already saw in John 3, if you remember, how Jesus said, judgment's already happening in the world because Jesus is here. So people who are rejecting Jesus are already judged and those who are accepting Jesus are already experiencing the fruits of salvation because, again, he himself is the judgment. He himself and what he, his mission when he came to die for the sins of the world is the crux. And we'll talk more about that here Um, But that just becomes the question that, you know, for those of us who are Christians, kind of this basic question that we've all asked and answered. If you're not a Christian yet, uh, you're hearing this maybe for the first time, but this is a basic sort of very profound and big question, but basic question of, do I believe in Jesus or not? Am I washed by his blood or not? Uh, Judgment happens through the Son and his work, not ours, which is why Jesus says to those who believe uh, that you're saved, not to those who are good per se, but to those who trust and those who believe in him that they have uh, eternal life. All right, so there's a lot more to say here and even about that. That's kind of an initial walkthrough and kind of a bit more of a, this is kind of what's going on, maybe it's questions about the judgment piece. But I want to dig deeper for the rest of our time and look at this question of how else does this passage preach good news to us? Uh, We say this a lot here, but more important than the what is the why. More important than asking the question, what's going on here with this mystical talk, with this curtain pulling back in heaven and kind of seeing the Father relate to the Son in a special way? Those are great questions, don't get me wrong. But more important is the question of why is this here? And why does Jesus want us to know this? How does this benefit us? How is this good news that all these things are true? 
All right, so I have four things, and I think they're all in your sermon inserts as well. If you want to kind of peek ahead, you can do that. But the first is, and I've kind of mentioned it already, but the subservience of the Son. So even though there's this identicalness between God and Jesus, the Father and the Son, there's an idea of subservience and Jesus coming underneath the greaterness of the Father as well. And so he says, it like in one place here, he says, the Son, speaking of himself, can do nothing of his own accord. Which may not sound like good news at first, at least in its purest form, and maybe it's not, but it reminds us that Jesus in his humanity is exactly like us. And so in that, it's also a reminder of our frailty. Jesus' frailty is a reminder of ours. And maybe it's also a reminder of our false sense of independence. I thought his words here sounded a lot like John 17, 5, where Jesus is praying and he, he says, um, at one point too, he's talking to his disciples and he says to them and, and to us by extension, apart from me, you can do nothing. You guys see how similar that is? Jesus is saying, apart from the Father, I can do nothing. But then he's saying to us, apart from me, you can do nothing. So kind of just a, a step down or almost a hierarchy there of the Father to the Son and the Son to the church, to you and me. There's a dependence idea. And so again, if Jesus in his humanity is an emblem of that idea, then we're going to really feel that too as, as human beings as well, right? We also are frail and we also are dependent. We are in every way powerless apart from Christ. I think he says in the same context, we're like a dead branch uh, that can do nothing except lie there in the ground until we're grafted into the true life-giving vine. All right, so, and again, that's where this becomes, starts to become good news is it's a reminder that the son became human and he lowered himself all the way down to where we are. But it's in that lowered state that he actually served that, uh, as the path to victory over sin and death because it was there in his dissension that he became like sinners, even though without sinning, in order to destroy sin. Uh, Hebrews 2.9 is helpful here where it says, Jesus was made lower than the angels for a little while, so see how the Son of God, of course, is greater than the angels, but this is saying when he became human, he was made lower for a time so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And so in his lowering, in his dissension, in his condescension, in his becoming human, that's how he was able to taste death and to work for our salvation. Uh, his death, his suffering, as we've seen a lot in John already, was his main M.O., it was his main mission. It wasn't an accidental problem that he ran into later in life, like in getting crucified, but rather it was the bullseye of why he came. And so again, uh, what this is saying and what Jesus is hinting at in John 5 is that God became frail in his son so that he might save us from our frailty. And that's how these, even just these subtle ideas about how the son relates to the Father and coming underneath and falling subservient to him start to point us to this idea of God became something he wasn't. God became like us. God took on frailty. God became lower and lessened. And in that lessening, he became great. He became the exalted one. And through his exaltation and resurrection, um, wrought life for dead things and dead people like us. Okay, so that's the first piece. Uh, the second uh, element or angle maybe on this question of how is this passage good news is that at the core of God's triune self is enjoyment and love. So Jesus says here the Father loves the Son. 
the Father gives to the Son. The Father shows the Son all he's doing, which is really kind of an endearing image. It's like a dad might say to his boy, come look at what I'm working on in the garage, or uh, look, at this, look at this garden I just planted, or here's what this book is making me think about. It's a relationship between a, a dad and a boy full of love, full of like a desire to show things and teach and things like that. And that's what Jesus is saying. So even as the son of God, like he's saying, becoming a human being, being born into the world through a woman, like there's an element of, of this as well, this kind of subservience. And again, that might not strike you as explicitly good news alone, but it is because it means that God is love, that he exists as a triune self, that before anything was made, he had a relationship with himself. He had an eternal friendship. He was able to love other persons of the Trinity. The Father was able to love the Son. The Son was able to love the Father. The Father loved the Spirit. The Spirit loved the Son. Like there's love, this eternal love existed before anything else was made. And it's something that false Unitarian gods cannot claim. Uh, the true Christian God is Trinitarian. Unitarian gods are false gods. They don't exist. They're not real. And there's no love in them because they can't love. There's no other being to love. They couldn't have existed as a loving being eternally because there's nothing there. And so Christians have this, this uh, notion, even though it's very mystical and it's high theology, there's good news in it that love is bigger than we think. And at the very core of God is not just love, but the enjoyment of himself and ultimately the enjoyment of us. And there's a lot of grace in that. It, was, it reminded me of this uh, quote from a book called Eleanor and Park. Some of you may have read. Uh, but this uh, quote where one of the characters, Park, it says, uh, loved how much his parents loved each other. It was the thing that he thought about when he woke up scared at night. Not that they loved him, they were his parents, they had to love him, but that they loved each other. And I think this is really true on a physical level, so be encouraged parents uh, in this and future parents. Uh, but there's a, a lot of truth to this on a spiritual level too in how it relates to what Jesus is saying here in that it is good for our souls to know that the Father loves the Son. It is safe for us. It's grounding. It's a foundation that if it wasn't there, we wouldn't otherwise have it. And uh, it leads us to this place of knowing that saving love predates our existence. Uh, saving love predates all your good works, and it exists wholly outside of you. Uh, and it removes the burden uh, from us, especially all kinds of burdens, but I think especially the burden of needing to love God perfectly. Uh, the gospel is not your love for God. Uh, you're not under a law anymore of love God with all your heart, all, all, <laughs> your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, no one's ever, ever, ever done that law, Christian or not, Old or New Testament. Uh, it was a burden. And what, what this is saying, this, um, the way Jesus is talking here about the Father loving the Son is he's saying, you know what, there is a love that existed eternally outside of you, before you were a blip on the radar of history, twinkle in your parents' eye, right? Uh, and that's good because it's a reminder that it's not about your love for someone else. It's not about your love for God, ultimately, uh, but rather God's love for his son, his, his own, the friendship eternally he has with himself, but then as that spills over uh, into us. In fact, you see this too in 1 John uh, 4.10, 
on the bottom here. So first, the gospel, again, is not love, love God with all your heart. But the gospel is this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that God has loved us and sent his son to be a sacrifice of atonement for our sins. Uh, there's a difference there, right? Uh, I think the Bible is set up in kind of a contrasting way to tell a story about how the first thing, though good, uh, was powerless to save and change the heart. Uh, and it was a heavy law and a yoke that couldn't be kept. Uh, but the gospel then changed things. It, it decidedly said, you have not done this. No one has loved God. That's not the gospel. But what love is, is love is God. And love is something that happens outside of you. It's a love shown outside of your heart, outside of your emotions and feelings. It's objective in that sense. And it happened through the spilling over of God's love for, Father's love for the Son into the world. And it, it took shape when Jesus died on a cross for our sins. And so, again, if this is all true, and this is why Christians um, historically and, and into today as well, and I encourage you guys in this, if you haven't thought about this before, that's great, they're fine, but just think this way about the Trinity is that there is good news in the Trinity. It, it means that God doesn't need you. He, he didn't make you because he was lonely or bored because he had himself before everything was made, right? There was a trinity. Uh, he had friendship and he had closeness. He had intimacy. Um, he had love. And so he didn't make people because he was lonely or bored or needed something from you, uh, but rather that, and if we ask the question, well, then what, right? Which is the next question. Well, if, if that's true, then why did he make us? And the only answer that makes sense biblically is that he must have just wanted to share himself with us. He must have wanted what he had to be experienced by more creatures. He must have wanted his love to spill over into the world, into our stories and our hearts. He must have wanted to save us when we fell away from him, knowing that was going to take place. And so we are his children too, right? Like 1 John 3, 1 says, we are the children of God, like the son and he wants more sons and daughters uh, to, uh, to share himself with. And so being like a father, not a benevolent boss, he does this. His love for us dictates our relationship with him, uh, not our works. And so I, I hope that's a freeing thing for some of you at least to hear. I know when I was younger in the faith, um, this is kind of Chris confession time here uh, a little bit, but um, I really did think God needed me. Uh, you know, and I, I probably wouldn't have said it that strongly, but I felt like he needed my prayers or he couldn't move. Uh, he needed my evangelism. Uh, he needed my good life. He needed my discipleship efforts uh, that I was involved in. He just, he needed me because I was kind of something. Um, it's embarrassing to say that, but that's where, that's where I was. And I was um, a worse person for it. Uh, I was not a good friend. Uh, I was arrogant and um, I was the opposite of growing, I was like receding spiritually. Um, and if you believe, I, the same will happen to you or probably has for many of you as well or will if you think that. Um, God doesn't need you. He loves you. He loves you deeply. But he doesn't need you for anything. Um, doesn't mean that we aren't used by him. Of course we are. Uh, but we have to acknowledge, we have to see uh, in this passage and many others that we are not needed uh, but, but deeply loved. So even if we don't love God, we're still loved, loved by him, which is amazing. Okay, the third piece is, uh, answer to this question is that the Father's attributes are made visible by Jesus. And so, um, to quote from uh, verse 19b, Jesus says, whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. 
And I was reading that this week, and even though I knew this wasn't true, my thought was, that's very one-to-one. So does that mean that the Father dies on the cross for the sins of the world as well? Because did Jesus need to see that happening first in order to do it? And, and of course, that's not true. Um, but it made me think, like, well, there, is, there, is there a related characteristic then that would, like, link up the Father and the Son along these lines? Because there seems like there needs to be. Jesus' statement is very one-to-one, whatever the Father does, right? And the answer to that is that Jesus shows us the sacrificial love of the Father, maybe not via a cross, but via loss. Uh, There's a story in the Old Testament that many of you know about uh, a time when God asked Abraham, one of the early patriarchs in Genesis, to sacrifice his son Isaac. And it's a story about Abraham in his confusion and his pain and his sorrow doing it, or almost doing it, because as the story goes, at the last second an angel stops Abraham's hand and he doesn't uh, let the knife fall. And Isaac is, Isaac is spared. Um, and so, but it's there that, if you know the story, it, it's right at that moment that we learn the theology. A lot of times you have these stories like this in the Bible, and then there's like, you know, there's, there's this crux moment, and then someone says something, like God says something, or a main character says, in this case, the angel of the Lord says something. This is the theology. The angel of the Lord says in Genesis twenty-two twelve, Now I know, Abraham, that you fear God. For you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. All right, and what we learn in this is, there's a lot lot we learn here, but we learn that this was not a test, uh, ultimately. This is not something God repeats in Scripture uh, ever again with people, with with, uh, people like us or like Abraham. So it's not something he will ever ask of you, so don't worry about that, you know, parents of boys. He will not ever ask you to do this. Uh, That's not the point. Uh, It's less about you than you think, actually. But this was a sign of Jesus and what he would be like and the father's relationship with the son. It was a sign of another time in the future when another son in the line of Isaac, one of Isaac's descendants, would also be bound and laid on wood, a wooden cross. And when a father, a heavenly father, in his despair would offer his beloved son, one and only son, for the sins of the world. And see, the angel's words then could be rewritten, these words, to say, now we, know, we look at the cross and see Jesus die for us and how the Father gave him. We could say, now we know that the Father loves us or now we know that the type of love the Father has for us because he has not withheld his son. That's the ultimate theology in Genesis 22. In fact, you see it in Romans 8 where Paul says, he did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also graciously give us all things? And so the point here, the theology where this preaches to us and calls out love to us is that both the Father and the Son gave up things for you. The Son gave up his life. The Father gave up his Son. And again, the point of theology there is to say that's the what, the why or the why does that matter or the how is the how of love is that's how much he loved you. That's what we look at to understand God's love is that it wasn't when we were good people, but while we were sinners, that's when Christ died for us, but also that's when God sent his son to, to die for us. And so the church then is uh, kind of beckoned backward, or maybe at this point in John 5, almost forward here, 
to see that the core of God's very nature is love. And we've already seen Jesus sacrifice for people. I mean, Jesus is starting to hint at this idea that the Father is a giver. The Father is also a sacrificer. The Father is also one who loses that we might gain. And if we don't understand, we can't understand that without Jesus. Like, if God is invisible and his traits are invisible, we're never going to understand this without Jesus being the, the exemplary one, the one who ultimately puts as an example or on display these invisible traits. He makes him known. And in this case, again, it's the Father giving to you and me, loving you and me, sacrificing for you and me, losing for, for you and me. That's how much he loves us. Then we move into this last part, which is the Son gives life to whom he will. Uh, this is from verse 21, where Jesus says, as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, again, here's that one-to-one, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. This is the, uh, I think from verse 20, the, the greater works that he's talking about, uh, greater than what he just did last week, if you're here for that, earlier, earlier in chapter 5 when he healed the invalid, the paralytic. Uh, what he's saying here is greater things than that are coming. I'm going to raise the dead. And greater than that even, like greater than the Lazarus moments, uh, physically raising the dead, kind of temporally, uh, is when he will die for the sins of the world. That's greater and better and more worthy of your time thinking about than all the physical healings combined of the Gospels. It, according to Jesus, is better, altogether better. I can't harp on this enough. I said this last week as well, I believe. But there is a hierarchy within the gospel accounts of what's better and lesser, what's more worthy of your time thinking about, meditating on, memorizing, pointing to, discipling people with, uh, eating, to quote Jesus elsewhere, uh, right? Uh, and that is Jesus' death and resurrection. And this, there's a scale here of sorts where he's healing some people from uh, minor illness to calling into tombs and saying, come out, Lazarus, to when he will die for the sins of the world. It is a, a progression upwards. It's an escalation of power and an escalation of love, an escalation of clarity on the question of who is this guy and why is he here? Why did he really come? In one sense, he came for all of those things, but in another sense, he ultimately came for, for the last of those things. All right, so that's a little more context to that, but in verse 21, uh, Jesus clarifies further by saying, the Son gives life to whom he will. In other words, the Son saves whom he wants. Uh, it's his choice. And this is good news because that's love. Uh, love and choice always go together. And, and sometimes we, get, we uh, get surprised by love. Love is a surprising thing. It catches us off guard. Uh, it stops us in our tracks. It changes our life plans you know, sometimes thought I was going to go this way and I met somebody and got married and took a huge um, right turn. At that point, a lot of you have this story. Aletha and I have this story on our own ways. It, it just loves surprises and it catches you off guard. It's not expected all the time. Um, I think I said a couple of weeks ago in reference to something, I'm forgetting, but how sometimes we look at couples and we never say this out loud, but we say, how did they end up together or something, you know, and... Um, or maybe you say it a lot, I don't know. But it's, uh, but it's like we look at that, we think, man, there, are, there may be an odd couple. Uh, there's a real estate company called The Odd Couple. Isn't there something like that in, in the city? And so you see that around. Uh, but we talk, with, we talk in those terms like an odd couple sometimes. But I think that's actually, when we see that happen, it shouldn't surprise us as Christians because God and the church are an odd couple. You know, like we might look at the church and say, 
why did God end up with her? Ooh, you know, like, yikes. And that's part of it is we are messy. Churches will disappoint you. Uh, we will hurt, we will, churches will hurt each other. We are, in some sense, the worst of people being saved. And it's, it's a scandal. It's unexpected. It's not, um, it doesn't follow in the, the common course of things. We don't earn it. We, people look at the church and say, well, it makes sense that God would love those people because of the best of society, or they never hurt people, they never sin. That would not be the gospel, right? And so it's actually kind of unlike the law, which is more tit for tat and responsive to our actions. If you think about this from an Old Testament covenantal perspective, the law said things like this, do this, and then you will live. But Jesus says in today's passage, the ones who live are the ones that I give to. Do you guys notice the stark 180 degree difference of those two statements? Please see it. These cannot coexist. Do you live based off what you do, the good things you do, the keeping of God's laws and commandments, or do you live simply on the basis of God's loving choice to lay down his life for you? They cannot coexist. The Bible leaves no room for it. Our bad theology leaves room for it, but the Bible doesn't. We must allow the gospel to be informed uh, by the word and not our own uh, wanderings and musings. And one of the main dramatic ironies of the gospel uh, accounts is that bad people are being saved and many good people are not. This is what we see um, play out time and time again. In fact, in Luke 10, Jesus or it says, Luke says, at that time, Jesus full of joy through the Holy Spirit. Notice the trinities here, by the way, again as well. This is a trinity passage. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But at that time, Jesus full of joy through the Holy Spirit said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was what you were pleased to do. Okay, there's a lot going on here. But sometimes in the Bible... The Bible pulls back the curtains and we get a glimpse into the mind of God, the kind of intra-triune conversation of the three persons of the Godhead. In John 5, the Father, it says, is showing the Son what he's doing. In Luke 10, in places like this, the Son is seeing it play out in real time and he's rejoicing. Look at what my Father's doing. And in this case, it's the joy of giving abundantly to the undeserving. The fact that he's hiding it from people who are the best and revealing it to those who are the worst because this is how grace and love, this is what makes God happy. This is how grace is exemplified. And so this question that I think we need to ask ourselves is do I really know what makes God happy? Like, this isn't a question that, I know I don't think about this all the time, uh, and so maybe you don't either, but what really, biblically speaking, like, what makes God happy? What does Jesus say to that question? One of the answers is that what makes God happy is he gets, he gets to give to you and surprise you with his own love so that you don't have to worry anymore about making God happy yourself with your works. Okay, so this is a huge deal. Like, again, we might look at that idea and say, well, that's kind of cool. Well, it really makes it practical, deeply pragmatic and important for our day-to-day -day lives is if you really believe that God gets true happiness in, in getting to give you something you don't deserve and watching you open up like a flower underneath that love, then we're, we're going to stop trying to make God happy. That, that's not how it works. We're going to end the ridiculous charade of just 
striving uh, to be a great person and it may turn his head with, um, with our amazing awesomeness. We're going to stop it because the Bible never says that that interests him. He's not interested in that. He's not happy uh, in that. But he's happy when he is able to give to people who are wretches and who aren't even looking for him and who aren't seeking for him and who clearly don't deserve him, which is everybody. Certainly me and you, but the whole world. Uh, God has been seeking lost sinners since time began. He's been at work scheming with himself uh, to plan for how he's going to redeem the world from its lost and fallen state. And Jesus, again, is the answer in the back of the book. You know, if, if that question of how is God going to do this is like the most difficult of calculus problems, well, Jesus is the answer. It's not even like left for us to ruminate about. There's no work. It's the, that's the answer. Jesus is the answer. And so again, he doesn't say that the son gives life to whom he has to or whom he's obligated as if he's giving in response to things we have done, but he gives as he wills, as he wants, <clears throat> which is yet another iteration of the unfolding biblical drama of the conflict between us doing and God giving. To wrap this up, I begin to, in verse 24, Jesus, this is worthy of reading again. This is so summative and just a great thing, a powerful uh, statement here from Jesus. He says, truly, truly, I'm not lying. He's saying, I'm not a liar. I'm telling you the truth. I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, <clears throat> but he has passed from death into life. All right? No partiality. Whoever, whatever you've done, if you believe in Jesus or trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins, if you believe that he is the word of God, if you believe in his resurrection, this is part of the unfolding uh, gospel as, as John paints it, you do not come into judgment, but, um, but you have passed from, on from death. All right. This, in one sense, this doesn't really need much. You don't need to say too much about this, and um, I don't want to muddy it. At the same time, I think there's a catch and a crux to this verse that will help us kind of put a bow on all this today. All right, the catch is this. The way all of this is even possible, the way this is possible, the way you not going through judgment from God based on what you've done is possible is that Jesus is judged later in the story. Jesus does die, and Jesus does himself first rise again and, and pass into life. So the benefits of a passage, this is a great um, kind of tidbit for how you guys read your Bibles elsewhere as just a sort of a, almost a cheat sheet of sorts is, is when you see a benefit come to you, always ask the question of, well, how did Jesus take the brunt first or pay a price for us to get that benefit? Or how did he bear the opposite of the benefit first that we might get that benefit? In this case, we don't have judgment, but he is on the cross, judged as a criminal, though he never did anything wrong. Judged as the son of God, judged as a blasphemer, a lawbreaker, though he never broke a single thing. And so uh, Jesus is judged, he dies, he bears the wrath of God. Galatians 3 is a great example of this as well. Jesus saves us from the curse. And if, if you put a period there, that would be true and good, right? Jesus saves us from the curse of the law or the curse of what can't be kept, or the curse of being separated from God. 
That would be true. But the Bible is at pains to say and show that the way we are saved from the curse is by Jesus becoming the dark thing of the Bible first. The pr- Jesus becomes the problem that we don't have the problem anymore. He becomes the curse that the curse is lifted from us. And so in this case, again, the way all this is even going to be possible, we're not even in the New Testament yet. John 5 is not a New Testament section. Uh, the New Testament begins at the cross. There's no New Testament without the death of Jesus. This is like a glimpse. This is a hint. Um, it's breaking in, but it's not fully here yet. Until Jesus is judged himself, we have no hope of judgment passing over us. And so we'll talk more about that as the book goes on. All right, that's the catch. The crux is only those who believe are saved, not a single other person. This is uh, one of those passages where Jesus is uh, exclusivistic. He's exclusive. Um, There's no other way to be saved. He says, only those who believe in my, my Father, only those who believe in me. There's no way to know God except through Jesus. There's no side door. There's no back door. There's no alternate route. There's no plan B. It's only Jesus. Only those who believe and trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of their sins are saved. Uh, most of you in the room probably uh, or believe this and, I'm, and, and have, have, have a firm faith. If you haven't, this is an invitation Jesus gives you in his word to trust in him, to believe that he is the door, the access point, the window of grace, that what, who he is and what he's done for you is uh, a relief. It is a salve. It's an ointment. It is uh, a nourishing drink. It's a medicine. It's a peace offering. It is, it is the way we have the forgiveness of our sins. The only way to be absolved is by God becoming like you in order to die in your place. Uh, and so if you believe in that, if you throw yourself on that, cast yourself on it, and hug it and cling to it, which is what faith is, you too will pass from death to life. All right, but for all of you, Christian or not, I think this is, because for those of us who are believers, this is a reminder. Um, by this last thing here, I think the, the, the word that I'll read, the, the word I think is inviting us to have a posture here. And so I'll close with this. And so I think like, if none are saved but Jesus, through, Je- but through Jesus, I, the invitation is to open our hands to heaven, to let go of your good works. They have done nothing for you before God. Confess your sins, breathe in the free air of the gospel forever, knowing that the Father did not withhold his Son for you. Is there a sin too big for that kind of love? There is not. That love preexisted all things, trumped the law when it came into existence for a time, found its fulfillment in Christ's substitutionary death, and continues onward into the future as the blanket that will always be big enough to cover our fears foibles and failures pray father thank you for this passage the richness of it uh, the beauty of it uh, the hints uh, of a greater work that are on the way Um, and yet jesus you have on this side of the cross we can see clearly uh, you've spoken clearly ultimately through your death Uh, not in parables anymore there are no more parables after the cross uh, which is kind of part of the whole thing part of the point but um thank you that you speak clearly through your blood, clearly through your broken body, um, so that the mysteries of places like John 5 are more accessible and understood. Thank you for your love, your generosity, your self-giving, your willingness to lose that we might gain. 
and showing us yourself in, in Jesus. Uh, thank you for, um, as your word calls him elsewhere, uh, the mystery solver. He, Jesus is the great secret revealer and the great mystery solver. The mystery being you. The mystery being how are we saved. Uh, the mystery being um, what kind of new covenant do we need against the backdrop of the old that will actually work. Uh, Jesus is the resolver, the answer of those questions, because the resolver of those tensions. So we thank you for that. Uh, but God, save us. Show us your grace more and more. Forgive us our sins. Uh, help us to bask in the love that you had before we even existed and that is spilled over into the world in our hearts and in our stories through Jesus Christ and him crucified.